Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This podcast contains discussions of intersexuality, transgender issues, transphobia, gender reassignment surgery, outdated language with regards to transgender and intersex people, brief cruelty to animals, facial injuries, surgery and medical experimentation, war injuries, Nazi atrocities, cruelty to prisoners of war, war rape, attempted sexual assault, and some naughty language. Hi, I'm Hannah, and I probably know more about women's anti-nuclear activism than you, because I'm doing a PhD in it. And I'm Nicola, and I have a lot of lolly wrappers in my pocket that are going to crinkle whenever I move, so I'm just going to move this. I had visions of crinkling as soon as yeah. you started eating the chocolate. <laughs> and I'm Nicola, and I probably know about the master from Doctor more about the master from Doctor Who than you. Speaking of masters, I'm also doing my in education. That was a beautiful segue. Thank you. Welcome to Women of War, a show where we focus on the exciting and eclectic stories of women throughout history and how they encountered and dealt with conflict. And as a very exciting thank you to everyone. <laughs> We've hit a thousand downloads. Overall. So. Overall. Yes. Yay! Woo! Thank you for downloading the show. We really, really appreciate it. Every single one of you gets like many, many brownie points. Internet kisses. And sparkles from rainbows. Kisses. All right. So in celebration, we've totally changed the format of the show. Well, slightly. So this is our second episode in our two-part series on transgender fighter pilot racing car driver Woody Allen Jesus, Roberta Cow. If you have not listened yet to part one, maybe go do that. If you're listening to this while driving and it's automatically queued up this episode instead of part one, please pull over before making any changes. Road if, safety is important, guys. It is so important. If you can't, Hannah, can you please summarise for us where we left Roberta Cow? Well, we left Roberta Cow in a prisoner of war camp, yep. which had just been liberated. Yeah. Although from it was the about Nazis. to be liberated. It was about to be liberated. Well, you fucked up. Let's keep going. <laughs> We left Roberta Cow in a prisoner of war camp, and that's it. What, do you want to talk about her life before oh, that? You, Was you... she born in a prisoner of war camp? Yeah. You want more? Okay. I do. So, Roberta Cowell was born, I want to say sometime in the early 1900s. 1918. 1918. I believe. You should know it. You researched That was last week. It's gone now. It's gone from my little peanut brain. Uh, It's two weeks ago. She was quite wealthy growing up. She was very wealthy growing up. Um, Dad was a doctor. Dad was a doctor. Mum. Her name was Dorothy. That's literally all I could find on there. Mum was rich man's wife. So She was a dinosaur. Unimportant in the historical record. Yeah. As we know. Yeah. Roberta went to all the fancy boys schools. Yeah. Became a race car driver. Yeah. Uh, became a fighter, no, became a pilot in a plane. Yep. Then that made her terribly, terribly seasick. Yep. So she was plane sick. That one. So she stopped flying. Yep. And then drove some more cars. Yep. And then Hitler. War. Hit that guy. That guy yeah. came. And so she drove, she flew planes again. Yep. But they didn't want her to start with, but then she was like, you need more people. And they're like, yeah, yeah. all right. You've got the guy with no legs. Like, come on. Don't throw up in the cockpit. We'll be fine. Yeah. She flew planes. There was a pregnant lady pilot in the um, she had fun auxiliary air transport. On the, on the base. Yep. She met an extraordinarily nice girl. She got shot down. Yep. She ended up in a prisoner of war camp. Yep. She ate a cat. She did eat at least one dead cat, yes. And... Her yeah. friend went crazy and died. Her friend went crazy and then... No, he didn't die. He was still alive, but he was, like, dead. And then we're back to the moment where and Roberta is in a prisoner of war camp. Well, we're actually... Uh, so this episode is actually going to have, like, very little conventional war in it. 
though Roberta did experience Peta Este following World War Two, or you know, at the time they would call it shell shock. Um, most of this episode that was PTSD for, for anyone who's <laughs> petty SD. Um, most of this episode is focused on her post-war experience of transition because I wanted to give it the space it deserved. So it's an ideological war between conceptualizations of sex and gender. Let's that sounds very that. wanky. I know it is, but we, we're both at university in our late twenties, so like, <laughs> so wanky. Yeah. Yep. Um, as we discussed last episode, some people might be uncomfortable with this area of focus for a few reasons. One, we're using what some hold to be outdated language to talk about Roberta and other trans people of this period because this is a language they use for themselves and we can't assume they'd use modern day terms for themselves if given the option. Two, some might take issue with us talking about a transgender woman because they hold that these women shouldn't even be included in or even called women. To that I'd say, please keep listening because you probably ironically have more in common with Roberta Cowell than you think, and it's always good to listen to things you may not agree with. It also costs exactly zero dollars and zero cents to be nice. And three, and this is a new one, please listen care. Are you listening carefully? No. Let's begin. Specifically to Roberta Cowell, she became quite a conflicted and confusing figure in her later years and actually said some disparaging things about transgender people. We're saying this now so you don't go through this episode thinking she's an amazing LGBTQIA plus icon who blazed a trail. Think of her more like Caitlyn Jenner, blazing her own trail, sure, but using her class privilege to do it and then using that blazed trail to burn all the bridges behind her. She also was on a magazine cover too. She was, but it didn't like say I am Caitlyn Kate. Jenner, but she was. So, you know. she, got, she needed money, that's why. More Because they were like, they were going to report her either way. They were like, she's yeah. like, some money out of this. Yeah. Fair. So, some notes. There's also going to be some stuff on intersex people because Roberta later claimed to be intersex in order to get gender-affirming surgery. We're going to go through some key terms now. Sexy. So if, so some of you might know all this stuff, so we'll put a time down in the show notes for you to skip to if you feel like you know the basic lingo. Nicola, pin here, remember to do that. Yes, dear. Uh, or if you still listen but feel like you know this stuff and you want to write us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be very sexy. Just use that time up for that instead, Yeah. yeah. Um, our first definition's up. Nicola, this is not a medical history podcast. I just love Harold Gillies so much. He was so cool. He was. He was. But Very cool. But this is not the point of the episode. Okay. Anyway, our first term is intersex, or intersex individuals. Intersex is an umbrella term used to describe a really wide range of variations in the human body. To be born intersex is to be born with sex characteristics that do not fit typical binary notions of what male or female bodies look like. In some cases, this can be how someone's genitals look, both externally or internally, while in other cases it can be a genetic or chromosomal difference. Intersex people are often victims of poor treatment or forced genital surgery in order to make them fit one half of the gender binary. In many cases, the intersex individual does not provide consent to these surgeries and they can cause lifelong mental and physical issues. Our understanding of intersexuality is still in its infancy even today. So you can imagine in the 1950s, where we're going today, it was even more difficult and dangerous to be openly intersex. Or was it? Uh, it's an iffy issue then. Yeah. yeah. The newish antonym for intersex is sometimes endosex, aka someone born with genitals and genetics that align with the male-female binary, but that isn't yet a widely accepted word. I just like it more than saying someone was not intersex because it stops mm. us setting intersex individuals up as the deviant away from the supposed mm-hmm. norm. When around 1.7% of live births in Australia are of intersex people with a variety of conditions and there's about, yeah... So we're not exactly sure how many intersex people there are in the world or throughout history due to the various ways these conditions can be identified. 
What really matters is that being an intersex individual has no bearing on a person's sexual orientation or their gender identity unless they choose it to. And to quote a common comparison, only about 2% of the human population has red hair. So if you're an intersex person who's also ginger, please go buy some Tatsulotto. Did you know, actually, one of the descendants of the Tatsulotto fortune was nope. an You don't want me to go there, do you? No. Okay. No. That's fair. We're not going We're not there. going. That's even, that's just like darker, 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 darkest. In this episode, we're going to use the word transsexual as opposed to transgender, as that is the word that Roberta and similar people use to identify themselves in their time. If they're alive today, they might use transgender, or they might use transsexual, as some older members of the community still do. Transgender people have a gender identity that differs from their assigned sex, which is usually assigned at birth, and they can, if they choose, present as their true gender identity through dress, behaviour or gender-affirming surgery. Gender-affirming surgery, what they call back in Roberta's time, was a sex change operation. It's when an individual is operated on to remove certain organs or bodily features to better fit their laser laser identity. (laughs) Ah, there's so many jokes I could make, but I'm not going to make them. Uh, so they might have something added or they ha- might have something taken away. You're not, you're smart people. You know what I'm talking about. This can include minor cosmetic surgeries like laser hair removal or plastic surgery to, oh, change, the shape of the fa- yeah, to change the shape of the face or more major surgeries like the removal or addition of genitals. This is part of the episode, so that kind of thing is like upsetting to you. You might want to give that a miss. These surgeries can include mastectomy, which is the removal of breasts, phalloplasty, which is the construction of a penis, orchidectomy, removal of the testes, and hysterectomy, which is removal of the funny bone. Nicola? Yeah? Hysterectomy is the removal of the uterus. We'll also talk about a We'll also talk a bit about endocrinology, which is the study of hormones and their effect on the body, which was a field in its infancy during this time. And to those who skipped that bit, welcome back. Thanks for the review. Yes. We have a lot of lovely quotes from Our Lady of the Fortnight, so Erin is back again to provide the voice of Roberta Cal, aka the first known British woman to be outwardly transgender and undergo sex reassignment surgery. You'll also need to know about a new character, Michael Dillon, originally named Laura Dillon, the first known British man to be outwardly transgender and undergo gender reassignment surgery. And there's another person I just want to talk about briefly, well, two more people. Dr. Harold Duff Gillies also features in this episode. He was a Kiwi-born otolaryngologist. Laryngologist? Who knows? The irony of not even being able to say this word about the throat. He was basically an ENT and face doctor. Mm-hmm. He would become the father of modern plastic surgery. We do not have an actor to voice him. I just think he's really cool. And there's another doctor, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, who was an early sexologist and researcher whose work was destroyed by the Nazis. Hirschfeld was mostly absent from the historical record due to the Nazis' de- destruction of the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft. Look him up. He's not actually in this episode, um, but he's very important in like Western queer and transgender history. So I think it's important to start from there. And Lily Elb um, was ba- vaguely in contact with um, Hirschfeld. So on the subject of Lily Elb... Uh, She's probably one of the most famous uh, transgender, historical transgender women, mm-hmm. who, because she was the subject of the film The Danish Girl. Uh, that's all we're going to say about that film. Yeah, let's just put that over there. Let's just put it's that over fun. there. And then there is also Christine Jorgensen, who was an American GI who also transitioned before Roberta, uh, including having surgeries in Scandinavia. And outside Lily Elb, she's probably one of the most mm. famous examples of a of an early historical transgender woman that we know of. Yeah, and like in the modern era. Yeah. There are, yeah, and it's like, as you were talking about last episode, we don't know, sometimes people would dress differently to their assigned sex at birth, and mm-hmm. we don't know why, and yep. if, let's put that over there. Yep. Let's put it over there. And as a reminder, um, as we did with the last episode, based on how Roberta described herself in her autobiography, we will be using he, him pronouns, uh, male pronouns for Roberta, before her outward transition. 
So the last time we saw Roberta, he was hanging out in his prisoner of war camp hut on April 18th, having realised a close friend of his had completely lost his mind. All the men in the camp were malnourished as the Nazi war machine was pushed back into Germany by the Allies. With the Reich falling around their ears, the German guards had little interest in keeping their prisoners safe, warm or fed. By the middle of April, there wasn't just bombing in the distance. The rumble of artillery had been added to it. This actually pleased the men. It meant the Allies were on their way. As the camp was full of men, unlike the German cities, they didn't particularly care if those who liberated them were the Americans or the Russians, because the Soviet army was remembered for their brutal sexual assaults on many women as they made their way through occupied territory. And on May 5th, the men of Stalag Luftwaffe woke up in a changed world. The German guards withdrew and the camp was instead full of Russian soldiers. The men of Stalag Luftwaffe were liberated and did what any group of starving dudes in a POW camp would do. They went straight to the Red Cross store and broke into it. Wait, that's illegal! Now at last we could have that gargantuan meal that we had all looked forward to for so long. We opened two food parcels and planned a menu. Obviously, we should have to start with a soup. And we each sat down before one of our homemade tin plates full of hot soup. None of us could get more than halfway through it. We were so unused to food that our stomachs wouldn't hold it anymore and we couldn't eat another thing. Two prisoners who decided to stuff themselves anyway died that night. Research into the effects of long-term starvation or malnutrition was in its early stages during this period of history. But with the liberation of hundreds of thousands of both prisoners of war and survivors of concentration camps, it had become quickly apparent that to immediately feed the liberated people was to perhaps kill them or make them severely ill. Both the UK and the US had done some experiments with willing participants, usually conscientious objectors, can you really be a willing participant if it's a con- conscientious objector? Like, they were like, I want to serve my country. I okay. will not do it through violence. So not like conscious no, 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 no. Vietnam where it's like, not I'm pe- against war. Not those poor boys who got sent to Pentridge. Yeah. Like, yeah. Prop- they were like, I want to serve, but I refuse to kill okay. to do it. I'll accept that. That is. I'll accept that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks. Alright. Well, well, Jerry, now, now that young Australian girl's accepted what we did, starving ourselves with the Scobians. All right, keep I was accepting the use of the term willingly. Okay. <laughs> That's what I was okay. accepting. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, is so, it? Yes. It's like on one side, we've got a really large involuntary mass starvation experiment. On the other, we've got small scale voluntary, voluntary. ones. Yeah. Uh, and they did this through restricting access to vitamins A and C as well. Um, so this And was, just food in general. And just food in yeah. general. Yeah. Uh, this was the Minnesotan starvation experiment, which was key in understanding refeeding requirements for the long-term malnourished when the Allies liberated those in Asia and Europe, who'd been starved for long periods. Many people who have been starved have and had lifelong health issues, and some survivors of concentration camps, children, even have genetic difference that changes their fat levels today. So it's such a fascinating mm. research area um, that I know about this. Uh, my mum is a dietitian and has studied this sort of stuff. And it's just fascinating that how this shows like intergenerational trauma is not just sort of like a weird mental thing, psychological concept mm. that people are like that's not real. Like obviously it is, but also it's on a DNA level. Yeah, it's a molecular like, level. Yeah, it's on that deep level. The body's like your parents, your grandparents nearly starved, so we're going to store fat more, mm. so that if something happens to you in a similar situation, you're not going to starve as quickly. Yeah, at the very least. Yeah, and I also just remembered. Um, the guy, Dr. J- Dr. Cade, who I talked about last episode mm. briefly, 
Um, he actually also did um, refitting experiments in Changi Prison when oh. he was older. Because they were getting all they had were Red Cross parcels. So like, yeah. what do we give to the starving yeah. to keep them alive as long as possible? Like, what adam- what snakes can we catch? Mm-hmm. So they ended up using a lot of Vegemite actually, because it it's really rich in important it minerals. It is, and so they were like figuring out like when the men are collapsing from starvation, what can we give them? Mm-hmm. What can we? What's the least amount of something we can give them to keep them alive? Kind of thing. Fascinating, man. It's so fascinating. It's not the point of this podcast, but it's just fascinating. Roberta was also struck by the youth of many of the Russians who had liberated them. Some were 16, others closer to 20, but it was hard to tell because some had also been so malnourished and so hadn't hadn't grown the way they should. A few weeks later, Roberta and the others in the camp were flown back to England, where Roberta found he'd lost 22 kilograms and had also developed scabies. Scabies is a disease. Nicola, this is not a medical history podcast. Hit me up still, though. All right. So what came next for Roberta? In the meantime, there in peacetime, I apologise, there was no need for the massive army the British and their Commonwealth allies, including New Zealand, India, Canada, South Africa, and some other backwater country led by short-sighted idiots. Australia. Mm, that um, one. Yep. So Roberta was discharged and sent home. Following his demobilisation, Roberta faffed about with a new business partner with the intention of setting up a small car engineering business. Fate wasn't on their side and they found it hard to get capital together and to get land together. And then Roberta developed a hemorrhage and jaundice, probably caused in part by the multiple plane crashes and extended period of starvation. And then his business partner developed polio, as you do. If you start talking about the race of the polio vaccine, I will kill you where you sit. The business eventually folded. Roberta, in a move foreshadowing her latest status as an enemy of the left, <laughs> started flipping houses. She'd buy one, make a couple cosmetic changes, and then sell it on for a bigger profit. She's like a, a she's not a boomer, but she's a boomer. She's such a boomer, yeah. yeah. She gave, she her children were boomers. Yeah, but she's not a boomer. Yeah, yeah. No, they were born during the war, so they wouldn't have been boomers. They would be... Oh, yeah. Or, anyway. Housing was in short supply in Britain because of that whole extended bombing campaign by the Nazis thing. And the baby boom! In 1946, motor racing started up again on an international scale, but we do have to assume Germany wasn't invited. Probably not. And Roberta took part in every race he could. He reconnected with some old mates from the RAF, and they established a small operation building race cars from a design he'd come up with while in the prisoner of war camp. Roberta felt his life was pointless and empty. He was all about drive and ambition, but could never follow up his grand plans with actual action. Later on, she would reflect that this was an attempt to put up an assertive masculine front, in an effort to not accept the subconscious desires that were making their way to the surface. Roberta did have PTSD coming back from the war, but he never caused it as such in his book. There was one incident where he was in a cinema seeing a film called My Own Executioner, where someone gets shot down while in a spitfire. The images were so realistic that Roberta... For a moment I was back again in the cockpit. As the aircraft was hit and crashed in flames, I felt all the pent-up emotion released that I must have experienced when my own plane was shot down. But this time, I was an observer and was not so preoccupied with what I was doing that I could feel no emotion. Now I felt the full impact of stark terror. Fear that I would be burnt alive. Fear that I would be lynched by the soldiers. Fear that I would be terribly injured by the crash. It was a full hour before I was able to pull myself together and walk shakily out of the cinema. Also, uh, remember that wife Roberta had? She and Roberta were divorced by mid-1948, and Roberta cut almost all contact with their two children. Put a pin in that. Roberta knew something was not right at all. Psychology had really taken off in the post-war years. 
For more information on an amazing Australian contribu- contribution to mental health treatment in this period, check out Finding Sanity, John Cade, Lithium, and The Taming of Bipolar Disorder by Greg Namore and Anne Westmore. As Nicola should have said last episode, yep. since she keeps talking about John Cade. And so, Roberta took herself to a Freudian psychiatrist, who was said to be at the top of his game. Let's just imagine Fraser. Let's not. Yes. They did a lot of talk therapy, and went from talking about current important issues to events of the past and then memories that Roberta had forgotten. They also did some dream analysis. All of Roberta's dreams were in black and white. Weirdly, though Roberta respected the psychiatrist greatly, one day Roberta was writing out a cheque for the sessions, and the doctor said, I expect you will find it more convenient to pay in cash. You know how it is these days. And that made Roberta completely change her mind on him, and she could no longer see him as a respectable medical professional. What? I have no idea. I think it might be a class thing. Like, he was like, you can't pay on... It's easy for you to pay by cash. And she's like, how dare you? I am upper class. Yeah, I don't know. It's... Uh, new money? Something? I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe because, like, her dad was a doctor. She was like, my father would never accept such, like... Or is it, like, chit-chat? nowadays with, like, tradies where you're, like, if you're paying with cash, maybe you're trying to do it under the table? Maybe. Like, are you trying because to get around... Because the NHS, I don't think, was tax, developed by this point. Tax dodge? And she's like, how dare you dodge tax? Uh, Even though she probably didn't pay tax? I'm, like, thinking about... Like, she doesn't <laughs> mention it. Like, dear diary, today I didn't pay my taxes. Um, oh, shit, I have to do my taxes. Um, but she's in that kind of group. Like, her, not just stereotype. She is. But rich people... Rich people don't like paying historically taxes. Historically not great at paying their taxes. But this is weird. I have no clue. After testing out a few other sites, Roberta settled on a semi-Freudian Scottish doctor. He was part Freudian, part Scottish. Ah, uh, yes, the notorious Freudian race. Yes. They did... <laughs> they, they have enormous cigars. All right. <laughs> they did the Rorschach test, and the doctor gave Roberta his analysis. Roberta's unconscious mind feared the loss of masculinity. In fact, the test said... Roberta's unconscious mind was that of a female. I'm sure you're all shocked. Um, it, this is an outdated conceptualization of the nature of consciousness, but we're just going to put that over there for a while because that's how Roberta understood himself. Don't at me. For some people, realizing they are transgender can be a moment of great relief and euphoria. For others, it can be distressing. Transition itself can also be very distressing, especially in societies that do not understand gender and sex through that lens. Roberta was greatly distressed by this realization and became passively suicidal. He decided he'd give himself a year to see if he'd get any better, but if, at the end of 12 months, he felt the same, he'd take his own life. Roberta tried booze, drugs, both uppers and downers, sitting by a river playing the piano? Not at the same time, but you're like, these aren't actual suicide attempts, they're just like ways of, pl- of passing the time, basically. That's fair. Yeah. He found a great deal of relief from playing the piano, and also... Refl- Sorry, I should have been... What? Through playing the piano. Like, oh, I don't play the piano anymore. Thank fuck. <laughs> Hate that shit. Reminds me of that Austri- Austrian trombonist. <laughs> Hate it. I love him. Oh, we all do. He found a good deal of relief through playing the piano and also reflecting on his dreams. But one day, Roberta realised she'd started dreaming in colour. During this period of disconnect, Roberta began to stay in a hotel in London, where she met and became fast friends with a woman named Lisa. Roberta also tried to connect up with old friends from the RAF, and was playing squash one day with one of them, when he com- commented that Roberta should probably wear a bra. Just guys being dudes, Just I guess. dudes being guys. I... So rude. But this pushed Roberta enough to try and find out if his body was as apparently feminine as his subconscious. And a reminder, this is how Roberta perceived herself and understood this aspect of her sex and gender. It's not really how things are conceived of today. 
Um, and also, I think from here on, we should start using female pronouns. Oh, okay. Um, spoilers. So, um, yeah, Roberta consulted with a sexologist on Harley Street, which is apparently, like, the famous medical street in London. Wankers. So, though Lionel Logue did practice from there, which is pretty cool. Who's Lionel um, Logue? He is the speech therapist for Colin Firth in The King's Speech. Ah. Anyway, so the sexologist listened to Roberta's story, and then he did what Roberta called a thorough physical examination, and he opined that Roberta's body showed many female sex characteristics. Wide hips, narrow shoulders, no Adam's apple, and other traits. Apparently, Roberta did have quite small boobs, and there was some degree of what was then called hermaphroditism. Close enough. So the sexologist surmised there was also a possibility that Roberta had feminine organs in her body, including that being willing to stop and ask for directions <laughs> gland. That's my one joke about that being for the episode. Because there was a story I cut from last episode where Roberta passed out while flying. She got hypoxia. And she wakes up and the radio operator does guide her home. And it's like, so clearly she was willing to stop and ask for directions. Um, so it seemed, seems, it seems, to quote the language of the day, Roberta had a degree of hermaphroditism or in today's language, intersexuality. I found this knowledge raised my morale very considerably. The intense shame I had felt began to disappear. Once I realized that my femininity had a substantial physical basis, I did not despise myself so much. True, I now knew that I was physically abnormal, but at least I could accept a degree of femininity without losing self-respect. However, Roberta was still hella hung up on two issues, one of which was quite understandable. First, she was worried about how she could present as a woman without becoming a social outcast. The wish to pass, that is, be perceived as your gender identity by others, is still dealt with by trans people today. The second was, she wanted to be feminine without being effeminate. I suppose the race car driving took care of that. She's not like other girls. Hashtag not like other girls. Roberta wished to continue with motor racing, but also wanted to look at less traditionally masculine pursuits. Still presenting as a man, Roberta took over control of a clothing company that produced both everyday wear, theatrical costumes, and high-end fashion. That's a lot to cover in one company. This is, you know, this is a period of great industrial output for mm. UK and Europe in general, mm. yeah. so it makes sense. Roberta enjoyed working here and learning all about the intricacies of fashion and design, especially for clothes said to be for women. Her friend Lisa, from the hotel, was the only person Roberta seems to have told all about her progress, with finding out about her body, sex and gender. Roberta did continue to be oddly judgmental of gay effeminate men, but she doesn't really dig into that in her biography. I saw a pansy over there, it's like, Roberta! Please! Glass houses! Roberta also began to seek out experts on intersexuality and ended up working with a female doctor and gland specialist. She underwent various examinations by different specialists and it was apparently decided that her particular case was a very unusual one and unique in the annals of British medical history. And now a diversion. There had been documented cases of people undergoing a transformation into another gender, either spontaneously or developing different sex organs, which Roberta took as a sign she wasn't completely alone in the world. She even lists these cases in her book. Mm -hmm. She realised that the universe had wanted her to be female all along. It explained why she was so aggressively macho. Mad? Macho? Macho. Macho. Macho, macho man. man. I don't want to be a macho man. (laughs) In her behaviour, she was compensating to tr- hide her true nature and also explain why she preferred the company of women. She wanted to be with her own gender. Some doctors thought Roberta might become more feminine without medical intervention as she aged, while others thought she might stay as she was. As such, Roberta saw herself as having three options. Option one, do nothing. Perhaps become more feminine as she aged. Option two, 
lived the rest of her life presenting as a man, along with taking the then-new medicine of male hormones, and be miserable. Option three, chance the experimental treatments and become a female. None of the doctors Roberta consulted had any knowledge or experience of a male-to-female sex change, but female-to-male sex changes, she claimed, were not unheard of. And in the eyes of 1950s Britain, cross-dressing women, that is, assigned female-at-birth women dressing as men, tended to attract less ire than assigned male-at-birth men dressing as women. But screw it, she was going to do it. Her first plan, however, was to become much more feminised, presenting herself as more feminine before coming out, to limit the chances of her being seen as weird. She would also have to deal with the social aspects of this change, hiding it away from the majority of her family, friends and neighbours. There were also the financial aspects to consider. This wasn't covered by the recently developed NHS in any way, shape or form. Roberta was also worried about the psychological strain of becoming a woman and presenting as such. Later in life, Roberta would later say there were definite psychological differences between men and women, and so people couldn't actually change gender or sex, and it's already hinted at in this section. She was worried that the more feminine she became, the more her resolve might weaken. Spoilers! It did not. She, as we said last episode, this woman literally cannot be stopped. Like, dead cat, don't worry, I'm going to eat it. Kill it myself, then eat it raw. Mm -hmm. Like, you cannot stop this fucking Mm -hmm. woman. The drive. You don't admire the hustle. Yeah. Roberta was also interested to see if she might turn out to be sexually or romantically interested in women still, or have those feelings towards men, or if those feelings would go away altogether. So there's a lot going on there. And again, this might just be bravado, but Roberta said... During the war, I had developed a very successful technique for not worrying about things. I just took it for granted that almost certainly the very worst would not happen. Then, on the rare occasion that it did not, I was not surprised. There seemed to be nothing to lose and a great deal to gain, both in future happiness and in scientific knowledge. Here was an opportunity for me to tread a path as yet untrod. So off I went on a great adventure. It's here in her book Roberta starts talking about the different experimental hormonal drugs she was on with the assistance of her endocrinologist-trained female doctor. Some of the changes were immediate. Roberta claims her skin got better and started to glow, and she looked a lot younger. Her fat distribution changed dramatically, and she began to properly develop breasts. As she was still mostly perceived as male, she started to wear a coat all the time to hide them. She was told off by a random old lady for going around in trousers with her hair cut short. Random old ladies just need to stop butting in, really. Stop. She also does the Roberta thing where she claims. Okay, remember how last episode yep. she was like, "I was yep. hitchhiking, my pilot didn't want someone to give me I five shillings." So hot, I, I was, was paid. so hot. So she's twice in two pages. She's so alluring that people keep approaching her. So when she'd been presenting and perceived as a man, women had always approached her. As well as gay men. And now she's looking more feminine. She was being approached by all these straight men as well. God, it's so hard being beautiful all the time. Roberta, please. Roberta, please. But then she also talks about how ungaily and unappealing she looked at times during this period. So it's like, it's just really hard to say. And it's like, maybe she wrote those two paragraphs on a good face day and like a bad face day. As her time on hormones continued and her body changed, so did her mind. Roberta realised that she wasn't really interested in approaching or going out with women. Rather, when she was checking them out, she was looking at them to check out their clothing, how they moved, walked and talked. That said, she really did not want to be seen as effeminate, even if she wanted to be feminine. There's a disconnect there. One day, Roberta went into a newsagent with the intention of buying Vogue. She was working in the clothing shop, remember? But the newsagent went, Oh, what do you want? Women's own magazine? Fuck you, Roberta thought, and bought a magazine called The Aeroplane instead. 
Yes, I think it's like she wants to be perceived in a very, very specific way as a mm-hmm. woman, which a yeah. lot of everyone wants to be perceived in a certain way. It's mm-hmm. just more obvious with trans people because often they have to, they sort of construct how they want to be perceived as in a more aware way than cis people do. Yeah. 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 So sometime during this period, Roberta happened across a book. She doesn't want to admit to the name of the book in the autobiography, either out of embarrassment or to preserve the privacy of the author. We don't know. But regardless, we do know what this book was called, and this book was called Self. In part, it was a study of endocrinology and hormones and the effect on the body. But the main idea behind self was this. I don't know why I'm slowly going German. Are you going into Freud? Like, I think is that so. why it's you're like, going it's German? It's not by Freud. Um, the, uh, the main idea behind self was this. Some people were born with their mind the inverse of the sex of what their body was. And since this was a physical condition, it could not be fixed by the rapidly popularising field of psychology. What self argued was this. Where the mind cannot be made to fit the body, the body should be made to fit, approximately at any rate, to the mind. In other words, people who had this condition should receive the hormones and surgery necessary to make their bodies fit their minds. This was a refreshing idea. Roberta didn't really know anyone else on hormones or in her condition, and so she reached out to the publishers of Self, who forwarded her letter to the author, who, in time, replied. The author of Self was known to be a bit of a misogynist, but there was no one else Roberta had heard of with such an interest in hormone science. But he didn't seem to be too much of an asshole, and after a few more long letters were exchanged, they decided to meet for lunch one day. Roberta felt very ungainly and obvious in the restaurant waiting to meet him. She was at an awkward stage of her transition where onlookers were often confused, and outwardly so, about her sex. And despite what oldies might say, people were not always politer back in the day. Finally, the man arrived. Roberta described him as younger than she thought he was going to be, and his hair was going thin on top. Very manly, though, and had a nice beard. They shared lunch and a chat and a coffee, and he sat there smoking his pipe. We were discussing the connection between sex and intelligence, and I, of course, maintaining that given equal opportunities, women can be the mental equal of men. He disagreed violently. Then came the surprise, a surprise so shattering that the scene will be crystal clear in my memory for the rest of my life. He sat there, silent for a minute or two, smoking his pipe, toying with his coffee cup, and then he spoke. I don't really see why I shouldn't tell you, but five years ago, I was a woman. It was Michael Dillon, a medical student who had been assigned female at birth. Michael had never felt at home in her body and had worn men's clothes whenever she got a chance, often presenting as a butch lesbian, riding around on motorbikes, rowing for Oxford in order to feel at least some degree of comfort. She and Roberta had that in common, but it wasn't enough. She'd even been kicked out of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force for being too mannish to sleep in the women's dormitories. Finally, desperate, she'd tracked down a doctor who'd been experimenting with the hot new drug in town, testosterone. It was mostly being used on what we now call cis men, trying to cure impotence and reduce the effects of ageing. Insert joke on how if climate change affected boners, it will be dealt with tomorrow. Mm. This doctor, Dr Foss, had also been experimenting with testosterone on cis women, usually when these women presented with long or really heavy periods, as in months long. He'd figured out that testosterone injections did stop periods, but sometimes came with side effects, including the shrinking and swelling of certain organs, voices getting deeper, and increased body hair. Most of these women held that it was worth it to stop constantly bleeding out of their vaginas, and, you know, one of the bits that swelled on testosterone, well, that can be a bonus. All this new information interested Michael greatly, and she made an appointment with Dr. Foss. 
I told him, I want to be a man. I was male in my mind and wanted my body to be made into that of a man's. Dr. Foss was fascinated. He'd not been able to test the testosterone in very high doses on anyone else out of fear for side effects, but I didn't care. I wanted those side effects and he wanted the opportunity to see what would happen. I could be the case study that made his name. We agreed that he would inject me with testosterone, but I would need to meet with a psychiatrist colleague of his first. The psychiatrist asked me a battery of questions, but I got through it. Hope kept me going. A few weeks later, I went back to Dr. Foss and found his attitude completely changed. He was clearly nervous and told me that the experiment was off. I bet, I know, a colleague must have warned him off performing such a stunt on a patient, especially when he could be called away to war at any time. The country was losing so many doctors to the army. I knew that if I didn't get help soon, there'd be no one to help me before the war was over. I stood to leave, and Dr. Foss did something very strange. He took out a bottle of the pills and threw them to me. Dose yourself, he said. See what happens. He didn't tell me what might happen with regards to side effects. I didn't know beyond what I'd read in the literature. And so I started to take them. There was a horrific and immediate side effect to Michael taking those pills. Someone in the medical faculty had let her secret slip and there was gossip flying around that Miss Dillon wanted to become a man. Michael packed her shit and fled to Bristol, which is just on the border with Wales. She managed to disappear in Bristol, getting work at a garage where where most of the few men left there, they were all the war, remember, judged her and didn't know what to make of her as the testosterone began to work on her body. His body. His shoulders broadened, he grew stubble, and working at the garage on engines and at the petrol pumps roughened up his hands. After a few months, he could pass to strangers as a regular dude, but the men who worked at the garage continued to treat him like shit. And then the war, which was still going on, arrived in Bristol. Also, hello Cathy, how are you? As the city had both Bristol Harbour and the Bristol Aeroplane Company, Bristol was a very sexy target for bombing and easily found as enemy bombers were able to trace a course up the River Avon as the moonlight shone off the water. Beautiful. That's a very idyllic image. Say Bristol again. Bristol. Bristol was the fifth most heavily bombed British city of World War Two. Birmingham was third with over 2,000 people killed. Hi, Mum and Arnie. Then Liverpool, of course. And then, of course, London. You'd think it was because Liverpool was a port city, but no, um, it's just the Germans really fucking hate the Beatles and they arrived too early. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 that checks out. So 4,000 people in and around Liverpool died in the Blitz, which is a lot. It is also one-tenth of the amount of people Oof. who died in the London Blitz. And I actually couldn't find easy enough to understand statistics in the German cities, but German cities are much, much worse. Oh, yeah. And, like, not just from bombing, from yeah. other things. Yeah. yeah. By this point, Michael was sleeping in the garage, both out of necessity and because it was, in part, his choice. Due to the regular rate of bombs, many companies began to hire people to stay in their buildings overnight, so there would be someone on site if, when, the building was damaged. This role was called fire watcher. Sure, you couldn't do much if a bomb fell straight onto the building. <laughs> you could watch it come down and kill you. <laughs> but if it caught fire in the explosions or from another house exploding, which happened quite often, as this was the Blitz, the person inside would be on hand to fight the fire. Michael volunteered for the role, in part because he desperately needed somewhere to sleep and to save money. He didn't mind the solitude. It wasn't like he had any friends and he was not in contact with his family. 
He would listen to lectures on the radio at night and read academic texts. Michael had been to Oxford, remember? He also developed a fatalistic way of thinking, the same as Roberta and the other pilots during their time in the RAF. If a bomb dropped and killed you, hey, it was just your time. Michael didn't even bother wearing his tin safety hat while he was outside during the Blitz, which honestly... It didn't do. What's it gonna do? I think it's more just like, hey, I've got a helmet on. Like, bomb tin hat. Like, maybe the difference between, like, your whole skull is shattered As far as, like, if you're going through buildings that are burning and collapsing, and like, bits timbers like... and stuff, like, that would, it would stop, you know, if a bit of brick fell, that yeah, would help, yeah. but it's, it's like, if a bomb falls on you, if a bomb falls on you, had this tin helmet on. Ooh, that's gonna help, yeah. Wales was also targeted by the Luftwaffe, especially Cardiff, as it was a key source of coal for the Allies. This led to some Welsh people moving across to the UK, and Bristol is right by the border. So I have to tell you, I have to interrupt you here, yeah. I'm very sorry, what my mum said about our accents. Oh! So A, I can't do accents for shit, but I was like, I knew that, that's fine. She's like, Nicola, sometimes she can do an accent. Sometimes, I don't know what she's doing. And I feel like your Welsh accent kind of fell into the second category there. Oh well, well I know what I'm doing. Alright. One Welshman, Gilbert Barrow, turned up and asked to work at the garage too. <coughs> Gilbert also began to stay at the garage as a fire watcher and thought Michael was a big old nerd, but in a nice way. They would hang out and listen to the radio, or if there was nothing good on, or just like, the Germans are bombing us again. Michael would give Gilbert lectures on philosophy, and they'd talk about literature, and I don't know, uh, anything to distract them from the fact that the Nazi death machine was flying overhead. Would be quite hard to distract yourself from that. Yeah, you'd be mm. surprised if people can survive, I think, mentally. Mm. Yeah. Gilbert had never had a proper education, probably because, like, Wales was largely subsistently industrial stuff at the time. Mm. There's not a lot of pressure on people to do that. And I, I want to say that Britain didn't support Welsh education. Uh, yeah, and, like, working class education yeah, like, generally. Yeah, yeah. That, that Britain has that trend yeah. in some of the other United Kingdom countries. Yeah, I think it's a mix of it's Wales and it's an industrial area mm-hmm. he comes from and he's working class. I have Welsh slate in my backyard, actually. Well, get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gilbert had never had a proper education and so he really appreciated what Michael was sharing with him. They never did talk about gender and one night the bomb dropped. No, not that bomb. A literal bomb! <laughs> I was going to put sound effects in here, but then they went in the last episode, so it doesn't really make sense to put them in this episode. That's fair. Yeah, yeah that's fair. We'll just use your homemade sound effects <laughs> instead. <laughs> the printers down the end of the road had been hit by a bomb, and paper, burning paper, was raining down from the sky. Michael was about to run out into the street when Gilbert made him put his helmet on. I'm Gilbert. We're both Gilbert. We're both Gilbert. They ran out onto the street and saw the building next to the garage was on fire. Crackle, crackle, crackle went the fire. Oh shit, they said, and ran to get the tyres that were stockpiled. Why tyres? Well, they weren't going to use water on the bomb fires because of... I mean, probably it's hard to get the water, I would say. Yeah. Like, you know, and then it probably needs to be used by actual firefighters as well. I didn't write this bit properly, I'm so sorry. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. There's uh, a lot yeah. of exclamation marks in the Yeah, because there were official firefighting units mm. during the... And that was also very, very dangerous. So I'm assuming they got to use the water pressure. Yeah. They would have been, like, prioritising water yeah. and where to put it and yeah. who could use it. And, like, it. obviously it's like if everyone's using their hose at the same time... It's not going to do It's not going to do anything. There's no... Water pressure's not going to be great. It could have been... I don't know when this is actually happening, so it could have been winter. The pipes mm-hmm. would have been frozen. Yep. Um, the water main could have been destroyed. Everyone's bucketing water in anyway. Mm-hmm. Lots of reasons. Yeah. So... 
What they could do was use everything and anything else they could find to smother the fires. So dirt was really popular, although I have to feel that's not great in terms of, like, quickly smothering fires. You have fire buckets. So they used dirt, blankets, um, so you may as well use what's left in the linen cupboards if your house is gone. <laughs> um, and you know what else is around a lot in garages? Mm-hmm. Tyres. Tyres! Michael ran up a flight of stairs to where he kept the tyres and rolled them down to Gilbert, who bump, shouted bump, in alarm. Bump, bump, bump. When a, the tires. A plus sound effects, Nicola. I'm a prep teacher. <laughs> the flames from the neighbouring building had caught onto the staircase. Michael ran down the stairs and jumped through the flames. He and Gilbert pushed the tires into a fire break. Just in time. Just in time for another bomb to go off in the printer shop, blowing the tires into the air. <laughs> Somehow, Michael and Gilbert kept their heads, presumably because they had their helmets on, <laughs> and spent all night moving the tires and fighting the fires. In the morning, they'd survived and received a little bit of bonus pay. Well, that's helpful. But it wasn't going to last. In autumn, Gilbert got his call-up papers from the Navy, and I had to ask. We were all highly aware during that time that at any night, that any day might be your last. I said, the garage hands must have told you I was a woman. And Gilbert said, of course they did. I figured out your secret on my first day here but it didn't stop me recognising you as a man. I told them, and he was laughing at this, I told them that you were as much of a man as any of them, and if any of them called you a girl, I would punch them. That is what he did for me. And then the next day, he left. I love you, Gilbert. I love you too. I love Gilbert so much. I love Gilbert. Gilbert's absence greatly distressed and depressed Michael, who felt trapped. He couldn't join the army, and his his workmates treated him like shit. But if he left the garage, he'd have to present identity papers to anyone who tried to hire him for a job, and the whole explanation would be a lot trickier now that he didn't look like a woman at all, and there was still an F on his licence. As far as he knew, there was no way to get rid of it. He was stuck. And then in summer 1942, Michael had a little holiday to the beach. He did love to swim, but he couldn't go in the water with people around because he still had breasts. He was out for a walk one morning when he passed out. Hypoglycemia. This guy just can't catch a break, can he? He woke up in hospital and the doctor was standing over him. Not that doctor. Like, the doctor! Oh, right. Uh, The doctor was like, what's your name? Michael told him that his name was Laura, as that was the name that was on all his official identification. Pull the other one, said the doctor, because it has bells on. I'm here all week, said the doctor. Michael realised he was on the male ward, mostly with soldiers who were back from the war due to injury, or other men injured in the nightly bombing raids in the area. A small affirmation of his gender, sure, but not enough for him. He still felt like a medical oddity, adrift in a mad world that didn't understand him. Six months later, Michael was back working in what remained of Bristol, and he was walking along the street when he passed out again. Michael, check your blood sugar. Eat a banana. I did look it up, and... Um. Uh. Very quickly, and people assigned female at birth. Um. Higher rates of testosterone can lead to you developing type two mm. diabetes. So it might have actually been something like that, that makes happening. Sense. Uh, it also might have been the constant horrific stress Michael yep, was under, that would both do it too. as a transgender man and a transgender man in the fifth most bomb city in England, and also a transgender man in the fifth most bomb city in England, with no idea where his friend Gilbert was. Michael was taken to the Royal Infirmary by some good Samaritans. This seems to have been a wake-up concussion for Michael. Because once they'd sorted his skull out, he began to look into getting his chest sorted. Sorted off? 
I don't know why I let you write this episode, to be honest. Because it's my passion. (laughs) It is unlikely that one of the doctors at the Royal Infirmary pointed Michael in the right direction of the man, the myth, the legend who could help him, the one, the only, the man you've all been waiting for, Dr. Harold Gillies. Dr. Harold Gillies was a New Zealand-born otolaryngologist who practiced in the United Kingdom. Commonly held, and rightfully so, as the father of plastic surgery, Gillies created, collected, collated, and codified many plastic surgery techniques that are still in some use today, with a special focus on plastic surgery of the face. Nicola, please stop yelling at our listeners. Okay, sorry. Plastic surgery in various basic forms has existed for as long as people have had faces and bits to lose off them. Major issues faced by the plastic <laughs> um, faced by the plastic surgeons of Edwardian Britain were those who had facial injuries from industrial accidents, gas lamp explosions, and stuff, or those who developed a distinctive saddle nose present in people with syphilis. Look Hi, at Danny. You, John Batman. Hi, Danny. However, the advent of the horrendous weapons of World War One meant that there were tens of thousands of men with facial or bodily injuries that needed reconstruction. Men were blinded or had their noses or jaws blown off by shells. Burns to the face or torso were common, and Gillies came to help them all. In the living memory of Europe, there had never been a need as great as this. Gillies also, spoilers, had some experience in genital reconstruction, as the shells and bombs of World War One and World War Two did not discriminate in what they took off. Until the advent of the war and the way in which Gillies formalised the profession, most plastic surgeons were held in quite low esteem. Plastic surgeons of the UK, most of whom trained in part under Gillies or learnt from books he wrote, had an enlightened view of Michael's issue, the same way Michael saw himself. He was in the wrong body, and so the body had to re- be remade. Easy. After the first... That paragraph is literally the entire reason I want to do this entire episode. Wow. <laughs> we should do an offset on Harold Gillies. Yeah. His, his, like, great-grandson was in the Vampire Diaries or something. That's that's an even longer connection yeah. than my charmed Cole, William yeah, McMahon, yeah. Prime Minister connection. Wow, we're just in a film together. It's like the great-grandson of Harold Gillies and the son of William McMahon <laughs> in a movie about racing cars. That would be the movie our podcast would sponsor. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. After the First World War, Gillies had moved into private practice. In addition to the soldiers who came to him with maxiofaciliary conditions, Gillies was also usually happy to do surgery for purely aesthetic or comfort reasons, and was even known to perform a breast reduction on a girl who had been refused by many other surgeons. Why not, Gillies argued, wasn't her suffering reason enough? Shouldn't people be happy with their bodies? He knew the link between one's physical condition and their psyche. In addition, quickly patients with intersex conditions came to see him. He would do corrective surgery on those born with ambiguous genitals, especially infants and young children. This sort of surgery was then, and is now, understandably controversial as the baby or child can't meaningfully consent to those surgeries. Usually Gillies was approached by the parents of the intersex individual who would pay him to change the genitals of their child to the one that best fit their assigned gender. This decision process did not include the child's consent. This still happens today with, air quotes, masculinising or feminising surgeries, forcing intersex children into the gender binary without the child having any say. For more on that, check out the information presented by Intersex Australia, which we have linked in the show notes. On other occasions, Dr Gillies was approached by adults with ambiguous genitals or intersex traits who did consent to forms of surgery in order to have their genitals best aligned with the gender they understood themselves to be. Following this surgery, the patient would get a letter from Gillies, or their usual doctor, declaring them that gender. The person could then take that letter to the birth registry office and get their gender changed on their birth certificate. Yes, put a pin in that. 
However, you could not just hop along to Gillies and ask for an entire gender reassignment surgery session. It was illegal in Britain at the time under the Mayhem Statute, which is a great name for a law. Great name. To remove a pair of healthy testicles off their owner. Pin that to, not not the testicles, the fact. Long, complex story short, this is women of war after all, Michael got his surgeries, got his new documentation, and so the F on Holly's identification was changed to an M. Yay! Yay for Michael. Then Michael began studying medicine himself, and eventually he published Self, which was a manifesto for trans rights disguised as an academic study of endocrinology. And now we are back to this cafe in what I think is London, where Roberta has lent it's possible to change your physical body and its accoutrements to better match the sex you truly are. Michael in Roberta saw a one in a billion chance. He completed his gender-affirming surgeries but felt guilty at the thought of marrying a woman who didn't know he used to be a woman or being unable to give that woman biological children. In Roberta, he saw a kindred spirit. She was basically the, she was literally the only other known person on the planet who had changed her sex at that point. And he basically not only fell in love with her, but also pinned all of his hopes and dreams of a normal man and wife, traditional married life with her, on her. So what if he couldn't give Roberta biological children? She couldn't carry them anyway. Together, they could be a perfectly normal heterosexual couple living at their true gender roles in the 1950s. Michael, you have to remember, was deeply traumatised by the experience of being trans in the early 20th century and the war, and also the patriarchy. Mm. This doesn't excuse how he dumped all his hopes and dreams onto Roberta, who was like, ah, no thank you. They struck up a sort of romantic relationship, but from day one it was very clear that Michael was way more into Roberta than she was into him. He would do anything for Roberta Cow. Then the day came, which is still an important milestone for a lot of transgender people. Roberta wanted to get her birth certificate swapped, changing the M that was on there for motor race car driver to F for Formula 3 race car driver, or male and female. She'd been on hormones for nearly two years by this point, and she went to see some specialists to get a note to have her birth certificate changed. She overheard the doctors whispering to each other that she was undoubtedly a woman, albeit with slightly weird private parts. Those hormones sure were effective. They found Roberta intersex and in need of gender-affirming surgery, giving her a vagina, so she could fit in with the expected gender binary. Strange that, considering she'd gone through multiple invasive body examinations during the war, and no one had noted anything out of the ordinary. Basically, in her book, Roberta says she was examined by several professionals, they found her to be intersex, gave her a letter stating this, which meant she could access sex reassignment surgery. However, Roberta's source is, as we incorrectly say, has bias. What's missing here is something Michael Dillon for her, and we have to rewind here to before Roberta getting her confirmation of intersexuality. Obviously, Michael's own story has missing bits and overlooked bits at absences. His autobiography was actually nearly destroyed. But in Roberta's case, there were two things the RAF definitely would have noticed were missing had Roberta (laughs) been wandering around without them during the war, and Michael dealt with them for Roberta. I'm talking about testicles. The RAF performed multiple physical examinations on Roberta, and everything was in good working order. Roberta had also had two biological children with her wartime wife, Diana Carpenter. As we mentioned in the first part of these episodes and earlier, Roberta later in life claimed to be intersex. She may well, ha- may well have been, but her condition either wasn't identifiable then or she simply chose not to identify it. So why would she claim to be intersex? It comes down to how different conditions were treated. To be an intersex person in the 1950s in Britain meant that the individual could access sex reassignment surgery in order to fit the gender binary because they had a physical condition that air quotes needed repair and air quotes. But trans people could not. They were seen as having a psychological condition and so should similarly be treated with psychoanalysis, lots of, and probably heroin. So Roberta may have claimed to be intersex and gotten a certificate saying so from doctors in order to access gender-affirming sex change surgery. 
No shade. You've got to do what you've got to do. But in order to be found intersex, Roberta needed an orchidectomy. Harold Gillies couldn't perform the surgery, though Roberta probably asked him. Because it was illegal under the Mayhem Statute. However, considering Michael Dillon performed an orchidectomy on Roberta Cowell, it does throw into question how externally obvious Roberta's intersexuality was. If she was intersex, which we don't 100% know. Regardless of what probably happened, as we have gleaned from Michael's papers, is that he was so hung up on Roberta that she asked him to do the surgery, which was doubly illegal because, as we said before, under British law, you couldn't just take someone's testicles off willy-nilly. Which was another thing Roberta needed dealt with. But also, Michael hadn't finished learning to be a doctor yet. Regardless, Michael did perform the surgery on Roberta, but he was a very smart man, even if he was also a love-struck one and covered his ass by getting Roberta to write out and sign a waiver in case she, like, died on the table while he was performing an illegal orchidectomy. Which she did not. She did not die. Re- Michael put Roberta's extra accoutrements in a jar, and he gave the jar to Harold Gillies. Thank you, Michael! Did he gift wrap it? Um, Gillies also later noted they were so shrunken from the two years of um, estrogen treatment that they were they probably actually could have gotten away with operating on Roberta mm. openly. Gillies totally knew that Michael and Roberta had broken the law, and so this might not have actually been mm. true. It could have just been a way for him to cover for Michael if the law ever came for him. Um, Gillies was very fond and protective of Michael. Perhaps this is also why Roberta doesn't include this in her biography. It could be a way of covering for her and Michael and Gillies as well, because he yep. knew. Um, but considering she barely mentions the relationship between herself and Michael at all, there could be several reasons for this. Michael is about to disappear from Roberta's story, so I would really recommend you read The First Man Made Man by Pagan Kennedy to find out about his incredible, tragic, and transformative life. Not pun. No pun. Kind of intended. Just don't buy it from Amazon. I love you, Pagan. Your book made me cry. Stay alive here, Victoria. So basically, he was way more into her than she was into him. Honestly, the whole way through this book, Roberta is more or less uninterested in romantic relationships. And outside of her friend and usual roommate, Lisa, she never really had another romantic relationship she cared to record. So she bounced, and Michael also bounced. Whatever her reasons for living out, the orchidectomy led to Roberta officially being classified as an intersex individual. So she could then go off and get her sex change. Which she did. Good for her. She would eventually receive facial plastic surgery and grew her hair out, preferring to do that or wear wigs to look feminine. She still felt a bit ungainly, but knew herself to be much, much happier as a woman than she'd ever been as a man. Lisa noticed this in her too, and assisted Roberta with learning how to cook, clean, and perform other domestic duties as befitting a woman of the 1950s. She was kind of like Michael in this regard. Both of them wanted to perform the rather strict ideas of gender in 1950s Britain. Roberta with domestic skills, and Michael seeing himself as having to become a breadwinner. Unfortunately, she also had to become acquainted with the pitfalls of being a woman as well. As she presented as a woman full-time, and an attractive one at that, just ask Roberta, (laughs) with a good deal of focus on makeup and her hair, Roberta would often be approached by men asking for directions all the time. It was a tremendous advantage to know a certain amount about the functioning of a man's mind, and I was very amused by the various types of approach offered. Some were brilliantly original, others very unimaginative. One of the most enterprising occurred when I was walking down Oxford Street. A man rushed across the pavement and pushed me bodily into the bar of a public house. He then took off his hat and apologised profusely for having bumped me, then brightly suggested that, as we now seem to have found ourselves near a bar, I might care to join him for a drink. Roberta also was once trotting down the road, and a man pulled up in a car and asked her for directions to Baker Street. While she was giving him those directions, he dropped in an invitation to dinner. Roberta accepted, because... Full offence, Roberta. She could be an idiot. Yeah. 
After a little dinner, the man's car broke down, and so Roberta sat primly while the girl tried to fix it. She knew she could just tell him how to fix the motor, but felt that, as the lady on the date, she, it wasn't her place. That actually happens on an episode of Frasier as well. So after a call to the 1950s British equivalent of the RACV, the man's car was fixed and he dropped her home. Also, she thought. Also, we thought! Saying goodnight to the gentleman at the front door, I stepped into the hall, only to find him at my heels. Lisa had been out that evening, and at this precise moment she arrived home with her boyfriend. She had invited him into the flat for a nightcap, but he was warned to be as silent as possible, because her girlfriend, me, was a rather quiet type and would probably have been asleep for hours. As they arrived at the front door, they heard sounds of unarmed combat from within. Open the door, and there we were, fighting tooth and nail. Now, if anyone asks me the way to Baker Street, I say, I'm sorry, but I'm a stranger here myself. Isn't it hilarious how it's always been ridiculously dangerous to be a woman? In a way, this reminds me of this in the same way when Roberta was talking about trauma in the war, like eating a dead cat raw or being shot down or the deaths of her fellow pilots and then followed up with like a little joke, like, ta-da! It's, um, it's just like that sense of like, you're like, this really distressed hmm. me, but it was funny! And you're not dealing with it. You're yeah. just putting it to one side it's again like, and again. It's like, if I again. laugh at it, then I don't have to deal with the emotions of it. Yeah. Roberta also found a lot of men would talk absolute shite to women and just expect them to be dainty and reserved and agree with everything they said. Shocking. She didn't like that. She still held on to the idea that there were psychological differences, differences between men and women and that women were generally worse drivers than men and usually had no interest in cars, except Roberta, because she was not like other girls. Perhaps now we might talk about some of her early beliefs about what she called transvestites. In her book, Roberta talks quite disparagingly about men she claimed, air quote, like to dress up in women's clothes, end air quote. She had a little more patience for women wearing the clothes of men due to the freedom it could bring them, but for both parties she saw them as a problem that would hopefully one day be solved by psychologists. So, seeing it through the then common Freudian lens, she half attributed it to the men not getting enough love from their mothers before my eyes started rolling so hard I couldn't focus on the page anymore. Roberta held the view that sex wasn't about genitals one had, but rather their genes. Jeans were the true arbiter of sex. Like Levi's. I will kill you! Never mind, they hadn't yet realised most humans have 46 chromosomes rather than 48 at this point in the 1950s. And Roberta claims all humans have 48 chromosomes, but sure, Roberta. (laughs) Classic! It was actually quite revolutionary at the time, though, for people claiming that sex was actually decided by quite invisible attributes. For portions of the rest of the book, Roberta discusses the current understandings in gender and endocrinological sciences that were gospel, and that's not how medical science works. And she talks about both people who supposedly spontaneously changed sex, which has been recorded before and since, and those who underwent medical procedures to receive to achieve a sex or gender change. Some of the latter groups she mentions quite disparagingly. Come on, Roberta. Around three years after she began her groundbreaking transition, Roberta decided it was time to reintroduce herself to her parents. Her words. She hadn't been completely AWOL. Hey! Got some military terminology in there for you folks. Hi, War vibe. episode. Yeah! But Roberta kept in contact with her parents via letters and the telephone. They had been in the know about Roberta's transition, but she hadn't wanted to see them in person until she was done baking, so to speak. Again, why did I let you write this episode? <laughs> Her parents had kept in touch with Roberta's doctors and they so were abreast of her pro... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. I actually did it. That's so good. <sighs> so her parents had been in touch with her doctors and were kept in the know, there we go, um, about Roberta's progress. 
It was also around this time that the tale of Christine Jorgensen, an American GI who had transitioned from male to female, became a global sensation. There's a sense that Roberta resents Christine's international fame, as she implies her parents might have been confused that Roberta was transgender, like Christine, as opposed to intersex, as Roberta claimed to be. Which she might have been. But she also may not have been. Nicola, I feel like we've made the point by now. Like, we just don't know. We, we just don't know. Look, at the end of the day, again, as I said, it doesn't matter, really. But as a close friend of Roberta said after Roberta died, she thought Roberta believed she herself was intersex, but the friend believed Roberta wasn't. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, like, literally all we need to know. I'm not digging digging her up to, like, check. but And it's you're not going to find anything, either. Yeah, there's nothing left. Um, Unlike the Summerton man. Um, But, like, it's just a really interesting case in, like, selective memory and, like, how we cannot trust any source truly mm. 100%. Yep. Yeah. So, well, Roberta was about to meet her parents in person for the first time as a lady. First, I arranged to meet my father. Characteristically, he arrived on the stroke of 4pm, the exact moment at which he was due. I was just about as nervous as I have ever been in my life. As I opened the door, I saw him start violently. A moment later, he controlled himself, followed me into the lounge, and we had tea together. I guess the poor man would be as about as nervous about the meeting as I was, but he showed no trace of nervousness or embarrassment, and this certainly had a reassuring effect on his newly acquired daughter. The cup rattled rather loudly on the saucer as I passed him his tea, but I avoid slopping it into the saucer by cheating and only filling the cup three-quarters full. I was soon completely at ease. The only reference of any sort that he made to my femininity was when he said he'd hoped I would never paint my toenails scarlet. After this meeting, which ended at 4.30pm, Roberta realised that she was shaking all over. She hoped that when she saw her mother the following day, she would be less nervous. Wrong. There was no real reason why I should feel terrified, because I knew she would be very sweet and kind to me. But I think probably I was afraid that she would not like me as a girl, and also she would find me so changed that she would feel that I was responsible for having done away with her son. Which I suppose, in a way, I was. Poor Mummy was doing her best to make me feel at ease, but the atmosphere was rather tense. Then we talked of clothes. I showed her sketches and photographs of some of my work. I think it was only then that she realised the extent of the change. How could this work be produced by someone who was once a horrible, grubby little boy who refused to learn the names of flowers, and who once took the vacuum cleaner to pieces and used it as the basis for a television set, which worked? After she had gone, I felt as though I'd been filleted and then put through the ringer. We met several more times before we were really at ease in each other's company. Then we became the firm friends we are now. Now openly herself to the most important people in her life, Roberta really began to open up. She and Lisa went to Paris, where Roberta had a brief flirtation with a hot French dude. She learnt more about hairstyling and makeup and how to dance. It was also in Paris, however, that the press began to hound Roberta. Every media outlet in the world was on the lookout for a Christine Jorgensen-style story, and both Michael, who by this point was on a boat to Mecca, by the way, and Roberta were forcibly outed to the press. Michael chose to go further into hiding, while Roberta, who was a bit strapped for cash, None of her surgeries or pills were covered by the NHS, remember. Ended up doing some newspaper interviews about her life and sex change. She also wrote the autobiography that accounts for a chunky chunk of our knowledge about Roberta during this time of her life. So where next, Nicola? October 16th, 2011. Oh, that was a good day. That is a bad day. Oh, that no. That was the day that Anne and Diana, the 71 and 69-year-old daughters of Roberta Cow, heard that Roberta had died in Hampton, West London at the age of 93. 
She had died on October 11th. Roberta had been living in sheltered accommodation, which is a sort of step down from a nursing home, but a step up from a retirement village mm-hmm. since the 1990s. She had spent much of her remaining life living with her friend Lisa and Lisa's numerous cats until Lisa had passed away in the late 80s. So what had Roberta been up to in the intervening 40-odd years? This portion of Roberta's life reminds me of me, actually. I'm constantly picking up and putting down different projects, unable to see most things <laughs> through. But you saw this through. I did. a thousand downloads. Yes, I did. I did it. So I, I hope she was happy. Um, she yeah. continued to race cars, and up until her 90s, she always had like a nice big motor. Nice. I was always really overpowered, considering London is one of the gridlock capitals mm-hmm. of the world. She had plans at one point, like in the 60s or 70s, to fly over the Atlantic, and she got her exquisitely manicured hands on a plane, a de Havilland Mosquito, which would commonly use as Pathfinder planes in World War II, dropping flares for the Bomber Command to follow. Roberta had seen these in action many times, and one squadron of the Mosquito fighters even saved her life while she was in the prisoner of war transit camp. We mentioned that last episode. The de Havilland Mosquitoes were mostly made out of wood. And when Roberta's flying venture ran out of money, the mosquito sat until it rotted and was scrapped in 1960. Roberta continued to race through the 1960s, and there's even footage of her taking part in car races. But as the money dried up, and possibly also her racing ability, she packed that in. I also wonder if she had a come-to-Jesus realisation that many F1 drivers had. Um, James Hunt and Nicky Lauda both had these in the 70s and 80s, respectively. And it's like, what the fuck is the point of driving round and around in circles really fast and nearly dying? That's a really good realisation to have, Yeah, and Nicky also had failed flying ventures, including Lauda Air. He had his own airline for a little while. He had two. Just, just wait. One day Nicola is going to do a podcast on Nicky Lauda. I just think he's neat. I can see it happening. After her retirement-ish from racing, Roberta tried to write another book, and it was then she made these publicly negative comments about transgender people. She retired from public life and took part in several other business ventures, but couldn't, we couldn't find much information about what those actually entailed. Knowing Roberta, they were either clothes, cars, or property-related. Since divorcing Diana Carpenter in the late 1940s, she had not been in contact with her or their children, who did reach out multiple times. Though Roberta did not contact her own children, she was very interested in the lives of her friend, Jane Omerod's children, and in her biography, Roberta did talk about feeling maternal. We don't know why Roberta actually chose to cut her biological children out of her life. Perhaps she felt they'd be better off without her. Perhaps they made her feel ashamed. Perhaps they would remind her too much of their mother. After their divorce, Diana, Roberta's wife, had quickly remarried to put the embarrassment behind her and had three children. Diana and Roberta's children, Diana and Anne, were mostly raised by their grandparents. Roberta lived, um, Roberta lived out the last few decades of her life in privacy, some would say seclusion, even as the world of transgender and intersex rights move forward in leaps and bounds, though today Britain is doing some pretty shitty backsliding with regards mm. to trans rights and intersex rights. Fuck you, Queen Elizabeth, but shout out to Prince Philip for giving me content for my latest viral internet post. So on that note, um, where do we shockingly finish? Prince Philip has passed away? Where do we finish this episode, Nicola? Um, the war ended in 1945, and we're now in 2011. Actually, I have a question for you. Oh yeah, what happened to love of my life, Michael's friend Gilbert, who supported him during his time at the garage ultimate, during the war? Ultimate ally, Gilbert. Ultimate Albert Gilbert, best he... bro, survived the war. Fuck yeah! yeah! And as far as I can tell, they um, did stay in touch for quite a while. I'm not sure if Michael could access letters from where he ended up in Kashmir. Oh, Michael. Michael actually died tragically young in 1962 at the age of 47 under the name of Lomsang Javanka because he'd become a Buddhist monk. 
So, now, two last things. One to bum you out and one to make you go, ah, little game. Okay. Bum me out vest. Roberta's death went unreported for two years. Oh, my um, God. She wanted to go out in secrecy and only six people attended her funeral. Oh, that's, that's that does bum me out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's sad. Okay, and this is more like, oh, no. All right, so, and for the last decades of her life, Roberta lived, as I think I said, in West Ham, in Hampton, in London, and another famous um, queer person involved in World War Two lived in Hampton from 1945 to 1947, mm-hmm. and can you guess who? Would you like a clue? Yes. Benedict Cumberbatch. Sherlock Holmes! <laughs> <laughs> it was um, Alan Turing lived there. Ah! Yeah! And so did Brian May from Queen. There you go. So I think that is that. Um, thank you to everyone who has listened to this out-of-field episode and responded so warmly to this topic and Lady of Focus. We didn't know what to expect. Um, and if you'd like to support transgender youth in Australia, please consider donating to Minus18. We have linked linked to the to the, the group in the show notes. And Liz. if you want to support transgender people elsewhere in the world, you are also yeah. free to do that. We have a listener in Iceland. I would encourage our beautiful Icelandic-based listener to donate to a trans rights charity in Iceland, for example. So there is many in many countries. Yes. We'd also like to say a massive thank you to our very talented and hardworking voice actors, Erin as Roberta Cowell and Ben as Dr. Michael Dillon. Ben is a transgender actor and LGBTIQA plus activist based in Victoria. And his website is benmcellan.com. Linked in the show notes. Erin doesn't have a website, but she's very lovely. She is so lovely. And now we'll leave you with Roberta at her happiest, finally being seen as the woman she wanted to be for so long, about to enter a dinner party. Do the thing you fear, and a fear will vanish. Now I'm walking down the wide sweep of the staircase, and my fear is vanishing. Everyone in the hall seems to be looking at me. I wonder what they're saying. If it's nice, I'm glad. If it's nasty, well, perhaps it's jealousy. Anyway, what do I care? Now I must speak to my host and hostess, and I must keep my voice low and soft. Now I'm dancing, and all the blood in my body has turned to music, and I'm ecstatically happy. The past is forgotten. The future doesn't matter. I've dreamed of this moment for so long that in its realization, it is even better than in its anticipation. The past is forgotten. Mm -hmm.